Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And later this week, we may, quote-unquote may, have some news about the show. Good news. Good news, everyone. Uh, But if we do have news before next week's episode, we're going to mention it on the Twitter feed before you'll probably hear it mentioned on the show itself next week. If you're not already following at TextMessagePod on Twitter and you're curious about this news or obviously just curious about midweek technology news anyway, then I would say go and follow that account and you'll be the first to hear and see what the news is. But hopefully this will be exciting to everyone. Ian, given that you know what I'm talking about, do you think that I've given the sort of the required amount of um, sort of anticipation there? Should I have gone further? It's, 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 like, it's like those YouTube videos where they always perpetually have an announcement. I've got an announcement, or they're doing a collaboration, or they you know do some clickbait. Uh, yes, the, the news is interesting. It, 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 it bodes well for the future of this show, and I feel like people will be excited and, and, and interested. And also, it's basically what they told us to do. Yes, indeed. Uh, the hundreds... Hundreds of them, in fact. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, keep your eyes, as I said, text message pod on Twitter if you want to see that uh, before next week's programme. Uh, let's start, though, by talking about two things that are happening to British schools. They have a tech angle. Here's the first one. Two schools in the UK are trialling the use of body cams, that is, cameras worn atop the body, if it wasn't obvious, uh, to be worn by teachers to monitor student behaviour and protect them, the teachers, from abuse. Now, this is according to a story I read this week on Wired. The schools in question are remaining anonymous. We don't know which two schools in Britain this is happening within, uh, but the trial has already begun and is set to last for three months. Now, there have been reports that, that violence and disruption in schools has been increasing in recent years. And so, says Wired, the wearable cameras are being trialled as both a means of deterrent to deter bad behaviour and also as an opportunity to record positive learning within the classroom. And I assume to record any negative incidents that may or may not be needed to be reviewed down the line. Uh, The footage of said incidents um, and behaviour will be stored in the cloud, which is similar to how footage recorded from UK police force body cams are stored in the cloud also. And there's about 20,000 police body cams in the use in Britain. Obviously, in Britain as well, we have tons of CCTV systems everywhere. I think we have some of the highest numbers of CCTV per capita of any country in the developed world. And we're now extending this out of the streets and into classrooms, at least as part of a trial. Now, Ian, before I get to my opinions, what are your opinions I'm not crazy about it. I've got to say, I mean, I I, I sort of understand. Right? I, I understand it more with the police, because um, you know that they, they, they are dealing with violent offenders who are uh, who are very likely to you know try and hit them, and they and they need to be able to show that they used an appropriate amount of force. With classrooms, I can see the good side of it. I can see why teachers would resist it 
as well. Because if you feel like you're being monitored all the time, you know, it, it, it just has that sort of like slightly overbearing attitude to work. And as long as there's no serious worries about a teacher, you know, and the, their interactions with the students, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it doesn't feel great to me. Now, I, I mean, it raises a number of questions for me, and you've almost touched on one of them there, which is which teachers and in what circumstances would one of these cameras be required to be to be used? And obviously, because all this is currently anonymous, we're not going to find anything out until such time this trial ends and a report is generated. But it seems to me to be fairly, oh, I, don't, I want to say a no-brainer, that, that, that you can see these deployed in in very difficult schools you know possibly inner city schools that have very high population where it's difficult to control a classroom maybe um but that it's not necessarily going to be a teacher's choice to wear this um i'm not sure there are contractual issues obviously i'm sure as well that it's probably not written in a teacher's contract um that they need to wear cameras either so there would have to be some sort of voluntary participation i think um but one expert did say that quote filming in schools will only occur when it's uh, a legitimate proportionate and necessary and that the the body cameras being discussed here are not to be used as a surveillance camera so this is not about surveilling and monitoring specific children at least that's the interpretation in the yeah, two reports it, that i read but i mean who's going to stop that like at the end of the day those teachers are going to turn in their body cameras as they leave the building when they finish work and someone's going to have access to that footage aren't they so what's to stop an overzealous head teacher looking through each teacher's footage at the end of the day i i said i just there's something about it that just doesn't sit well with me i can't entirely put my finger on what it is because like a lot of insidious rules and you know and cctv in general it is always pitched as keeping us safe by monitoring the bad people and I don't know. I I feel like if you're a bad person uh, and you're out with with out with malicious intent, that you sort of you would be aware of this and you would take steps to avoid detection. It feels like you know we're just we're watching everyone. But I think this is the merging of two precedents we've seen already. Though we have cameras in schools schools have cctv cameras in them my school that i grew up in had cctv cameras before i even left uh, the town that i grew up in to move to london over a decade ago um and we also have as we noted earlier cameras on police officers in the street and and we have cctv so it doesn't seem like a stretch to think that this is the way it was going anyway but it will be probably the spring at the earliest before we hear how this trial went and what the next step for that trial is we will keep our eye on it and we'll check back when we know more Well, meanwhile, in the second story we have about tech and schools merging or colliding, uh, kind of like the uh, the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy in several billion years' time, uh, cybersecurity lessons, according to the BBC, are going to be given to school children in England uh, in a bid to find what the story at least says are the experts of the future to defend the UK from attacks. Now, it's hoped 5,700 pupils aged 14 and above will spend up to four hours a week on the subject as part of a five-year pilot to be made available from the next academic year, which starts in September. Now, that was according to the BBC. Another report I read said that it will include classroom and online teaching, so both in-school and optional, assuming it's all optional, uh, 
tuition via an online course, uh, mixing some real world challenges with actual hands on experience with some of the issues at hand. Now, this is going to be funded by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. It's going to cost 20 million or rather 20 million is being provided for these lessons, uh, which are designed to fit around pupils' current courses and exams. So it's very much kind of opt in. It's not uh, going to form part of the next GCC curriculum that's mandated. Um, and DCMS is seeking providers to deliver this program. Bids are closing next month. So we don't know exactly who's going to be responsible for coming up with the lesson plans and the actual tuition. Now, obviously, this seems on the face of it to be a very good idea. Cybersecurity is getting no less relevant. Um, We're going to need experts in the future. Um, But it is something that I felt when I read this story this week had happened before. And I did some very brief Googling, and it didn't take long before I read another story on The Telegraph from 2014 that said at the time there were um, lessons in cybersecurity to be delivered to school children across the UK in response to growing concerns about a rising skills gap in the industry. Um, That was going to be funded by the Cabinet Office and back by the NCA, the National Crime Agency. Now, that, of course, was under the previous coalition government. Um, This now is from our present day conservative government. So I'm not entirely sure if there's some if there'd been any crossover there or how successful the previous one had been, if it was widely rolled out, if at all. But 20 million has been put aside. Bids are closing in a month. It seems like it's something that is actually going to happen, which I think is 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 fantastic and i really hope that whoever is delivering these courses is going to do so in a way that isn't necessarily sensationalist and actually is is going to give people practical skills they need to know about things like firewalls yeah and 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 stuff like that and it's it's kids are going to be much more um adept at tackling these than we would have been 10 years ago when we were being taught about how to use um excel and if nothing else we will reach a point where tv drama will be made by people who've had a basic understanding of what a firewall actually is um and they will know that um computers don't click when you type um and uh intrusions don't just show up with a big red box that says firewall intrusion detected blah 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 uh, so there'll be an ancillary benefit of this in that people will walk away from school with a vague understanding of computers that will be beneficial uh, my daughter has just been through internet safety week uh, i mean we've seen a lot of this online but even at six and a half they're teaching them about you know being safe online which is pretty good i didn't know about that can you tell me more uh yes uh basically they have that well it's really aimed at older kids um, but what, I think one of the things that the teachers have been encouraging uh, that this younger lot to do is to, um, I think they were sort of saying, oh, we'll have a week off the internet. Now, uh, my daughter doesn't really have any internet access, so to speak. Um, she would occasionally do, they have some online learning stuff um, and she'll be allowed to log into that. But obviously one of us is always present when that's happening. So um, she can't wander off onto the wider internet and it's all quite uh, safely done. But yeah, uh, I think it's it's just about getting them to think at that age about what the internet is and about some of the dangers. No, but that's great being six years old that, that, yeah. that they can be a part of something like that, that, that presumably is presented in a way that's that is accessible and interesting to them and engaging and that's the thing and she came home and said to me oh daddy i'm gonna i'm not going to go on the internet this week i'm going to i'm gonna have a week off because uh, it's internet safety week and I, you know and i just think that is an in itself is fascinating to see that you know i guess she sees it as 
any like anything like you know a, so, so, like giving up chocolate for Lent or something like that. She just sort of sees it as a, a you know the internet is a a, a treat and yeah, but you have to be careful. It's it, too much of it is not good for you. I, I it guess. seems like a pretty final solution that you know as part of Internet Safety Week you have a week off the internet, which it's sort of implicit there that uh, being on the internet is inherently dangerous, which is not strictly true. No, but I also think if you think about it and if you think about how we use phones and stuff like that on the internet, it is quite easy to become very very I I don't want to say addicted because I'm not sure if that's it but it is kind of like an addiction you do spend you can spend too much time on these things I think it's great to teach children that you can walk away from it for a week and be fine and uh, you know that's that might be extrapolating too much from what she came home with I mean she's obviously taken her own meaning from the lessons but you know I I think it's interesting to get them involved and the internet didn't exist when I was six well it did but not in a way that was accessible to me if you're a child listening to this of uh, school age in secondary school uh, maybe ask your teacher about this relatedly I did think there was one consistent theme I noticed when I was researching this story earlier this week, which is that the story on the BBC about this new cybersecurity initiative in schools was illustrated by a shady-looking gentleman in a hoodie doing something that looked like it was out of the script for Minority Report or a screenplay. And then when I was doing the additional research and found that initial that previous report from 2014 on The Telegraph, the stock image associated was a, another shady-looking person in a, in a hoodie doing something that nefarious. And I thought, if we're going to promote these sorts of things to kids, we need a little bit more effort paid by ourselves, the media, but also elsewhere in the world to just make sure that when we say the word cybersecurity, we're not directly linking this to shady, hoodied teenagers working out of basements. You know, it's really... It's not a good image. We don't want to associate the field um, with that. And I think yeah. that that needs to be addressed both in and out of the media. And, and, and Yeah, and, and by educating kids, we'll hopefully avoid that, right? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. There was a cybersecurity expert called Brian Lord who was quoted in one of the BBC stories. He's actually a former director at GCHQ. And he said that you know the scheme itself was going to be an essential initiative to recruiting people into profession, which I agree. But he said... And this is a direct quote. He said, there is a perception that cybersecurity is all about techno geeks who have long hair, glasses, wear heavy metal T-shirts and drink Red Bull. And first I thought that sounds a lot like me. Um, you know, I was wearing a Cannibal Corpse T-shirt at the time. So it did feel a little bit like he was peering through my webcam. And having come from GCHQ, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Um, but then he went on to say that there are those and they do an extraordinarily good job. But there is a whole range of other activities that can appeal to a wide cross-section of children, graduates and apprentices. And at the moment, they don't know what it is that's on offer. And I thought, well, that's absolutely right. And I just really wish that the editors of the site at the time hadn't illustrated it with a picture that kind of matches his uh, his description there. But that's a little inside baseball or a British sport that we, don't, that we have. Um, but if you have any thoughts on this, if you're a teacher, if you're at a school, you have any ideas or are getting involved in this, please let us know. Podcast at natelangson.com with any thoughts. Well, this week, Ian, I was trying to think of a way of making a joke about Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, heading to the University of Glasgow to collect an honorary doctorate, which he did this week. And the closest I could get was to have the iPhone, you know, the A-Y-E phone, 
Scots tend to say I a little more than than we do in England, and I thought right. that'd be funny. Um, I couldn't work it into a good joke. So what I thought I'd do instead is just explain the idea and hope that that amused somebody. <laughs> well, did it it's work? A, it's it's hard. It's a it's a written gag, right? It it works well written down. It doesn't work well spoken. Um, honestly, I'm I'm going to go with uh, no. It, oh. it, it it was somewhat of a failure. That's that's disappointing. I'll be honest. That's that's hurt me deep in the feelings. Um, fortunately, the news will withstand, and we can go on a little bit more to say that he had a fireside chat, uh, a Q and A uh, during his tour, a little mini tour of Britain and, and other places in Europe. In fact, this week, and and Cook had said that Britain will be quote just fine after Brexit. He was confident. Um, he uh, he said that the firm's intention was to keep investing in the country. Uh, this was according to a write-up I saw on v3.co.uk this week. And I did wonder if what he meant was Britain selling Apple products will be just fine after <laughs> Brexit, uh, given that they have recently increased prices somewhat. Uh, but I think he was talking more broadly. Um, one of the things he said is he said, and you'll see why I'm pairing this story to the previous ones. He said, quote, we think coding should be required in every classroom in the world if it, if, uh, it gets kids a lot more engaged because they are living in a digital world. We're all living in a digital world. Um, now, he probably wants them to buy iPads to do that. I guess fair enough. That's kind of his thing. Um, but it was a nice set of sentiments, I thought, to, to hear. I'd like an honorary doctorate one day. I didn't go to university. I have no degree. I'm completely unqualified to do what I do, actually. Um, so well, no, you're not. You're not, you're not unqualified. You're perfectly qualified. You have conflated... The idea of going to a building for three years, learning about something completely unrelated, and then walking out with a piece of paper. I mean, I went to university, but it, it and but it had very little impact on what I've ended up doing in terms of you know where my career went. So mm. I, 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 I well, thanks, that makes me feel better. You know, I, I previously was hurt in the feelings on the previous story, and they've been they've been lifted up. They've raised me up. Honorary doctorates have always struck me as very odd because if you've uh, the or the only real reason to go and get a qualification is to to at the end of it hopefully have learned something. Um, and as you know, as you go down the educational system, you get more and more specific you know specific learnings. So if you're a doctor, then you go and you get a speciality, and you know, but by the end, you're an expert in that field, and there won't be very many of you. Um, but giving out honorary degrees and doctorates and things like that just i wouldn't want one particularly uh, i'm sure it's a great honor and i understand that it, it forms a part of a university's ability to attract students but you know why would you want something you haven't earned i suppose it's all about pr isn't it really it's good it's good pr getting honorary it, doctorate that's right it is and it it, it it prs the university and it you know and it makes certain people feel good because they've their their contribution has been recognized i guess it's like a knighthood or something like that you know it doesn't it doesn't in itself mean a, a great deal yeah. uh but it's well a, i don't it, know actually I, I thought this once before actually which is that you know i mean i don't live in any illusion that one day i'll have a knighthood but what i like about the thoughts of anybody having a knighthood from a personal experience or feeling rather is not to actually have one but to know that i've done something that deserved one yeah you know that's quite a that's quite a nice that's quite a nice thing you know it's that that would make me feel quite quite juicy inside
Ian, can I ask you, it's a bit slightly personal question and uh, no obligation to answer this, of, of course. Um, it might land you in jail. But have you committed any crimes recently? Um, I'm just trying to think. Um, I've, I've, I've probably broken the speed limit, to be honest. Um, I mean, because I think most people do that, right? Uh, I don't drive, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I, my assumption is that it's more common uh, than some other crimes. But and it, for the purposes of uh, introing this uh, story, I thought it'd be worth knowing whether perhaps you have fished without a fishing license. I can't no? think of anything more boring than fishing, so no. Mm, okay. Have you dodged any rail or tram fares? No, no. Okay. I've, I've, I'm a big subscriber to the idea of paying for rail fares. Right. Well, in that case, you are irrelevant as far as this story oh. is concerned because... UK criminals, not Ian Morris, accused of minor offences, will soon be able to plead guilty and receive a sentence online. There was a government document released this week that had a very long title I won't bore anybody with um, that had a lot of kind of some conclusions based on a survey done with people at the public and uh, legal practitioners and things um, that concluded it might be quite a good idea to let people pay for crimes online. But key is they'd have to plead guilty online and then pay an associated fee the idea being that it freed up judges to do more important jobs rather than sending people to court and i thought that'd be worth it having a little chat about ian it's it's kind of feels like a shakedown you know when you get those things sometimes you get like um maybe not maybe not malware but like a, an overlay to a website that says you've been caught looking at porn it's illegal you've got to pay the police a thousand quid or something like that um and they're hard to get rid of, um, but it's just an overlay. And if you alt F or whatever, it goes away. Um, but if it, you, it feels again, you just feels like you're giving, you're just scaring people into just paying up, right? Well, this is, this is this is actually interesting because this is one of the things that this consultation revealed, um, which is that one of the major concerns is that there'd be some vulnerable users, and this is particularly those who have maybe learning difficulties, mental health issues, or poor language skills. They might not understand a lot of what they're seeing. They might not understand long-term implications of pleading guilty to something or, you know, accepting a criminal conviction uh, or the standard penalty without arguing it. I mean, the government said they're going to have safeguards in place. They're going to run a trial. A trial will go ahead and, and they're going to monitor how this it responds. But but you've highlighted it, that, that key point. Well, also, but I, I think that this is just wide open for abuse because as soon as you start allowing people to collect fines online without any court process being involved in it what you're doing is then you're saying oh okay so scammers will then go oh you've been you were caught speeding you you were caught doing 40 in a 30 or 35 in a 30 and people be like oh well i've almost certainly did do that um and then there's there's a link to a very official looking web page and the fine is like uh you you know you get it's a 10 pound fine or something like that um so again it's not enough to really worry you but you just pay it and and if you do that to enough people and there you know there, there are plenty of people in the world who would just go oh probably did do it looks official i'll i'll just pay it it's only a tenner right you know there is there is very little doubt in the public's mind if they get something online that says go online and pay this fine they know they're it's nonsense um so i that would be enough of a reason i think to not do it well there's another point that was raised uh in uh, page 10 of this document <laughs> which i may have in my hand in printed form in this document some respondents had suggested that actually allowing this online pay, you know, admission of guilt and, and associated 
paying of the fine, if that's the correct sentence, would actually allow people to commit more offences without being subjected to the embarrassment, that was put in quote marks, of being in a dock and sentenced in a public court. So essentially, if they've got lots of money and they don't really care about a fine anyway, yeah. they can, they can you know, go and pull a cod out of the river and, and eat it for free. And if they get caught, they'll just go online and, oh, I'm caught again, curses, you know, type in the details, pay the fine, and then go back out and catch a haddock. You know, or jump off the tram without paying, jump onto a train without paying, catch, I don't know, hake. Do we have hake in our rivers? I've no idea. I don't know, but we don't have cod or haddock in our rivers. Those are, I believe, saltwater fish, aren't they? (laughs) All right, Captain Bird's Eye. (laughs) The, the, The fact is they may not allow this for repeat offenders. You know, so if that was an issue, which obviously is an issue, they they raised it enough times to be considered an issue, then they could say, well, you were just caught for pulling, a, you know, insert type of fish here. Fine. Uh, you've, you've had that. Uh, but now you've been busted for jumping off a tram without paying. You're going to have to go to court for yeah. that. Uh, it's, that's very similar to the way that the existing, um, if you speed, you can sometimes be offered a, um, a speed awareness course, and you're, but you're only allowed to do one of those every three years. And it, it basically commutes your points to zero and it costs a little bit more than the fine to go, but it means you don't have any points. Mm. Well, so in addition, in addition to those issues and, and some other issues raised by people, again, you know, learning difficulties, mental health issues, um, you know, the government had said that the system will safeguard vulnerable people. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer for them to say. Well, I mean, um, they're, they're, of course, they're going to say that, aren't they? I mean, they're not going to go, ah, oh, yes, it is going to make it very difficult for vulnerable people, but hey-ho. Yeah, and I and it's a trial, um, but they they say it's going to design it's going to be designed for users, or it's going to be designed to prevent users from pleading guilty without fully understanding. So they're going to have potentially, you know, links to an online chat service where people can type in. They'll have they'll have a message that says, you know, call citizens' advice, call um, a lawyer or a solicitor or something. They're going to try and make it easy. But really, the whole thing that this boils down to is freeing up magistrates because I don't imagine this is going to cost like huge amounts less to police so to speak it's more about allowing magistrates to get on with um dealing with more serious crimes potentially as such anyway just to conclude the next steps are apparently the majority of respondents as part of this consultation supported the principle of a uh, what they call a statutory standard penalty option uh, for people who do enter an online guilty plea so they're going to carry out a a pilot extensive piloting they say they say it's going to safeguard vulnerable people as we've discussed um and you know they're going to do their best to make it clear i still think this has a very low likelihood of getting off the ground because as you say there are too many foreseeable problems that might allow people to admit guilt where they shouldn't maybe there were mitigating circumstances that aren't easy to convey over a web service and if it does become a thing it's almost certainly going to be simultaneous to the traditional option of paying a fine in which case what's the point in having it because then you're paying twice and not saving anyone any time or money however we'll keep our eye on this for you i'll keep reading extensive government documentation to find out if there's a story in it and you can look forward to hearing that in the future on text message that's what you're getting from us government documents being read on your behalf well it's been a bit of an intense show so far we've talked about schools and law and fines and all sorts of things so we're going to talk about something a lot easier to digest we're going to talk about 
the 10 most influential mobile phones. I mentioned to my fiance Kate earlier that we were going to talk about this and she said, why? And I said, because I want to. Uh, that was literally my justification for including this. I saw a link on The Guardian today, or this week, for um, a list of 10 influential phones. And I thought, yes, let's discuss that. And of course, you know, who can forget the Motorola MicroTac 9800X or the Benefon ESC uh, or the Samsung SPH-M100 Uproar? That was the first mobile phone to have MP3 support uh what else we got the sanyo scp 5300 that was the first camera phone or the o2 xda flame that was the first ian you'll love this you'll love this this was the first dual core processor pda phone in the o2 line wow who could possibly forget those probably everybody uh anyway none of those feature in the list i was looking at i just thought they had funny names and they had interesting facts associated with them Mm. the guardian had uh in its top 10 what did they have here? The Motorola DynaTAC. Now, that was the, the, the one that started everything, wasn't it? That was the one that came out in 1984. Yeah. Took 10 hours to charge, lasted for about half an hour, uh, cost about £7,000 in today's money. Um, they had the Motorola StarTAC. That was uh, in 1996. That was a flip phone. Obviously, the Nokia Communicators, the Nokia 6210 from 2000, the 3310 in 2000. A few others here. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to get some feedback from our dear and beloved listeners and Twitter followers uh, to tell us some of their favourite phones and uh, and for you to write in and give us some descriptions of your favourite phones. Ian, do you want to take us away? What was the first reply we had on the Twitter feed? It was from, uh, who have we got here? Marta. What did yes. Marta say? Yeah, yeah Marta said uh, the Nokia 3310, which is, let's be honest, um, going to be a common answer in this, isn't it? Because those, those, those early Nokias were really pretty popular and very sturdy um and martha says it's the only phone i've ever i've ever had that survived being dropped in a mosh pit wow i mean that doesn't surprise me at all that that phone is probably still going somewhere almost certainly those are the phones where if they got hit by cars there was more damage to the car (laughs) yeah they were pretty intense um what else do we have here Paveen, she wrote in she said it was a nokia 3210 i mean that's a predictable one i have to say i would agree that's the best phone ever made no 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 or more specifically, yes. Well, um, so, but also no. I mean, it, it have you considered depend- yes? Well, I have, but then I settled on no. Um, but mm. what? Let me, let me explain. There were two kinds of people in the world. There were Ericsson people, and there were Nokia people. You were very clearly a Nokia person. Correct. I was. Well, I started with Motorola's, and when they all broke in the way that Motorola's always did, uh, I ended up with an Ericsson, and they were great. Hmm. Okay, well, moving on, because I'm standing by my original opinion that 3210 was the best phone ever made. Mm -hmm. Sebastian said the Sony CMD J70 was his absolute favourite. He says he still has it as an emergency phone. That's good. Now, the J70 was an interesting one. I had its predecessor, I think. It had a scroll wheel on the left-hand side and was the very first phone I ever had that technically could support pornography. It was dot matrix porn off a WAP site. And I remember that my mobile phone network at the time did free... My mother listens to this. Shouldn't really be saying this. But uh-huh. it had free WAP access at the weekends, and you could browse all sorts of stuff. At the that weekends? A- That's correct. Amazing. Uh, this was obviously, that phone uh, harks back to before Sony uh, merged with Ericsson's mobile division. So that was a pure Sony phone, whereas at the time I was using pure Ericsson phones, like the T10 and the T18. Yeah. Great well, Rhiannon- Rhiannon, uh, yeah, I mean, the Sony phones were, were great at the time. They were a, a strong competitor to the uh, 
uh, to the Nokia's and Ericsson's of the world, but they 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 didn't innovate quite enough. Didn't really in terms sell of, either. Well, that's the other problem. And Panasonic used to sell phones over here as well. I had a Panasonic phone at one point. They were always more popular in Asia. My friend Nathan uh, started with a Panasonic phone and then they pulled out of the market, which they did a couple of times um, before returning and then pulling straight back out again. Uh, Sebastian said... Oh, no, we just had Sebastian. Rhiannon said, look me in the eye and tell me the 3300 was not the greatest of all time. Although she broke that down to was not the GOAT. Ah, the 3300 was definitely one of the most unusually designed. It had a square screen as well, in addition to being oddly oddly shaped. They had that one that was like a an Art Deco lipstick holder, didn't they? It was a long, thin sort of cube of phone. I honestly, that no, it was no wonder that Nokia eventually, you know, had to get outside help because it was quite clearly full of bonkers people. Well, we had another vote for a Sony here from Christopher, who said, uh, I have most affection for my Sony CMD Z7. Obviously, no comparison to a smartphone or even a feature phone, but so well resolved, is is what he said. And I think the Z7 might have been... Oh, no, that was the flippy one. The Z7 was the flippy the flippy Sony mm. back in the day. So that, that was from the same line. Also had a scroll wheel on the left-hand side of it. Um, same line as the the J70 and the one that I had, which I can't remember what model that was. Ian, who else did we have? Um, right, uh, Cam Bunton uh, works at Pocket, another tech journalist, obviously. Uh, has very fond memories of the BlackBerry Pearl 8110. Um, yeah, I mean, the Blackberries really were very much loved, weren't they? Um, especially b- pre smartphones because obviously you've got you know tech you know, messaging blackberry messenger which enabled you to stay in touch with your friends without really paying a fortune for it um so i was in fact i was talking to my hairdresser about this like she was saying that her first sort of smartphone was a blackberry and i said yeah it doesn't surprise me they, they sold really well with young people and like businessmen it's a very funny pairing isn't it yeah plus the batteries lasted for ages but that so is true that that was also that was also handy and we had a few others here, I think. I mean, we had um, a vote. Uh, Ruben said the Nokia E71 and E72. They were special. They were they were, they were were excellent phones. A lot of people use those as car phones, I think. And then Ian Williams said the Sony Ericsson P800 all the way. A brilliant smartphone way ahead of and its time. That was a phone, wasn't it? That really yeah. was. A favourite of many, I believe. Favorite it's of so many. expensive, though. I mean, if you were buying your own, I think it was... I, I seem to remember it was like... 600 or something quid or maybe it was even 800 quid maybe that's where the model number came from but it was expensive maybe and then uh, just as we've been recording emma tweeted to us and said that her first phone was the t18 now i think that was an ericsson she didn't yes. say ericsson wasn't yes it? Now, i had a t18 she said emma said that she thought this was so cool having a vibrate function while all my friends had 3210s now the 3210 i believe in a later edition got a vibrating battery but it was really the 3310 that brought in the vibrating that's off the top of my head i may have made that up but i think that might have been right well maybe it was a third party battery um yeah because so nokia's had vibrating batteries didn't they motorola invented uh vibrical which was in the phone i think i think that's right and then nokia got around maybe some patent issue by putting it in the battery um and then everyone else just i don't know waited for the patent to expire with motorola and then just did their own thing but um i i the t18 i got that phone i'd i'd come off a star 
uh, one of the last generation of StarTax, I think, and um, it had broken and I had insurance with my carrier at the time. Um, so I sent it back and they said, well, we don't carry this phone anymore. We'll have to just send you something else. And I had no idea what they sent me. So and they sent me an Ericsson. And I was kind of annoyed by it at the time. But then I started using it. And it was just fantastic. And, I, and, I, and the, from that point on, I didn't move away from Ericsson until um, they got bought by Sony and it all sort of fell apart. If you had a favourite phone that was not listed in the several responses we had from listeners this afternoon, then you can tell us those for maybe next week if we get some really if we get some really creative explanations for why your phone was brilliant. Maybe we'll return to this topic next week. Podcast at NateLangson.com. Go nuts, everybody. Go nuts. If you've got pictures, send them in too. We'll put them on the blog, perhaps, if you've maybe you're using one in a compromising circumstance that could amuse me and Ian. That would be great. And in the meantime, let us know on Twitter if you prefer at text message pod. That's where everyone else just centers theirs. You can too. Let's check in with Tom Merritt on Daily Tech News Show and see what's been going on this week in his wider world of global tech. Hey, thanks, Nate. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we discussed what the US FCC is up to with zero rating, shared tips for staying safe on the internet, explained what you can get from 5G services when they arrive. It's all about capacity, not just speed. Discussed the NBA's upcoming video game basketball league and talked about whether high-end smartphones are worth the money anymore. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you guys. Well, Ian, it's that time again. We're at the end. It's been a pleasure, mate. It has been good, hasn't it? Don't forget, listeners, that if you want to stay ahead of maybe some big news coming next week, follow us on at TextMessagePod, and you can be the first to hear about maybe what we're doing with the show. And otherwise, you'll just hear about it in regular audio form next week. Ian, until then, I think it's time to say uh, goodbye, I think, isn't it? Yes, I think that's the word that people generally use to uh, bid each other adieu. Marvellous. Oh, yeah, bye. (laughs) And then after that, I forgot to say it. Bye. I'm definitely going to have to put the longer version of that stuff about Captain Birdseye (laughs) at the end of the show. That was very amusing. All right, Captain Birdseye. That, That really did give me a good chuckle, that aren't they <laughs> all right captain bird's eye <laughs> this is a tech show <laughs> oh, dear. captain bird's eye oh that's amazing oh. listen i have a fondness for alphabites you know i went around to andy's house the other night and um, he'd done his online shop from Morrison's and it arrived when I was there. And he pulled out a giant bag of potato alphabites. He said, these are just for you because I know you like alphabites when you come around here. Which awesome. I thought was quite sweet. Oh, that's very cool. Well, 